into the singing part of that. And um, every week, Dan and the team never disappoint. Would you thank them? Needed that stuff. Man, that just clears the air, doesn't it? It's good. It's good. It's good. All right, I got a lot to cover, and I want to get, get on with this. So, um, throughout history, there have been uh, times of spiritual renewal, <clears throat> certain periods of time that we can look to. Uh, we find them uh, throughout the scriptures, we find them in our history, history books. And, and the thing that you have to remember is that spiritual renewal can actually happen in a variety of different ways. <clears throat> First of all, it can happen on an individual level. And, and some of you have experienced this, where you know, you've, you've either been talking to someone, or you've been in prayer, or maybe you've been in a worship or environment or something along those lines, where you just feel refreshed because the Spirit comes down and does what only the Spirit can do. How many of you have actually experienced anything remotely like that? Yeah, I mean, it happens. Uh, it also can happen, not just on an individual level, but it can happen within a group of people, a small group. And, and over the years, um, we've, we've called this, we've actually put a term on it, it's called a revival. And uh, probably some of the more famous ones is the Azusa Street Revival on the West Coast back in about 1910 that gave rise to the modern Pentecostal movement. And then uh, we had another one uh, in relatively recently in 1970 at Asbury College that actually started the college and then spilled over to other congregations uh, around the Midwest. Uh, I still talk about some of these things that have, that have gone on. But there's like this outpouring of the Spirit, and it changes people. And usually what happens is that there's a, an emphasis on taking care of the poor. There's an emphasis on just my relationship with, with God and what that means to the people around me. Uh, sometimes uh, there's, there's uh, miraculous healings. There's, there's several things that actually happen in those revivals, but it's a, this moment of spiritual renewal. Now, there's also uh, moments in history where it's not just an individual or a group of people, but a large group of people over a period of time. And we, we put a term on this too. It's not a revival. It's called an awakening. And you may have uh, heard this term before, especially in your U.S. history books. Because back in the, about the 18th century, there was a period called the Great Awakening, or the First Awakening, okay? And uh, there was you know, several things that occurred, but it happened over a period of time. And usually what we find with, with these awakenings is that it's around a time period of great upheaval. There are things going on in the country, in the region, that uh, is... is disorienting, it's chaotic, it's causing people to really look to God. It emphasizes personal aspects, aspects of faith, and it's usually centered on emotion, which is interesting, rather than the intellect. Now, I think those two things kind of go hand in hand, but during these periods of awakening, there's very much an emotional component to all of this. And so, um, they're so momentous that even history acknowledges them. And so here's the first awakening, or what's called the Great Awakening. It happened in 1725 to about 1750. It was centered in New England here in this country, but it also occurred at the exact same time in Scotland and in, and in uh, Great Britain proper. 
So we had this, this thing going on that spanned the ocean. And this was before the American Revolution, remember? And it uh, happened mostly among Presbyterians and Anglicans, God bless them. And again, the focus here was on emotion over intellect. In fact, during this period of time, we call it the Enlightenment. And so logic and reason and scientific method, these were the, the types of things that were being taught. And, and, and the church had kind of swung in that direction too. And, and here we were in New England and the great Jonathan Edwards saying, wait a second, there's something other than reason here. There is room for God in our, in our world. And Interestingly enough, um, if you read some of the, the material that, kinda, that comes out of that time period, the jails were mostly empty. A lot of taverns went out of business because of this great awakening. Some people have even suggested that Great Britain itself never went through a violent or bloody revolution because of the Great Awakening. Because remember, at the same time, you had France going through a horrific type of revolution. But that didn't happen in Great Britain. Interesting. The Second Awakening happened a little bit later, 1790 to about 1820. And it was not only in New England, but also moved into the Midwest at the time. And the, the, the groups of people that were most affected were Methodists and the Baptists. Their numbers grew exponentially because most of them were on the frontier. And the emphasis here wasn't just on emotion, but was on telling other people about what Jesus had done for them. And so it was emotion translated into relationship, which is what we call evangelism. Make sense? And so we, we had a swelling of numbers within it, specifically these two denominations. There's also a third awakening, uh, the so-called third awakening. There's a bit of controversy around this. It occurred between 1890 and 1910. It happened in the Midwest and into the South, and what it gave rise to what we call the holiness denominations and the Pentecostals. Remember, I said the Azusa um, Street Revival occurred in 19... 1910 itself, and that gave rise to what we call the modern-day Pentecostal movement. But also, here's the interesting thing, is that the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, came out of this. Because in 1885, a man named D.S. Warner and a group of people had an idea about what this church would be like. Came out of this same time period, out of this the so-called Third Awakening, and the focus here was a little bit different. The focus here was not just on evangelism. Well, that was a part of it. It wasn't just on emotion. It was emotion translated to dealing with moral evils, holiness, dealing with those things that bring us down, that cause us all kinds of problems. And so there is this spiritual renewal that happened. So we know from history that this, this occurs. Now, this last week on Thursday, uh, Pastor James and Pastor Dan and I, we had the opportunity to attend something called the New Room Conference. Now, let me explain a little bit about this. <clears throat> the New Room Conference came out of an organization called Seedbed. So there was a couple of folks at Asbury Theological Seminary who decided that we needed some type of um, way of, of getting certain types of resources into the hands of pastors. And so Seedbed was started. It became a publishing house. Uh, a lot of the, uh, so, several of the things that you see around here that we use come out of Seedbed. Dan actually worked for Seedbed for a period of time. 
Well, they decided to create a conference. And this conference um, goes around the country for a one-day event, and then they do a great big one in Tennessee every year. And, and their express purpose for the New Room Conference is to sow the seeds of another awakening. Now, I want you to think about that. Something so big, so vast, a spiritual renewal on a large scale, and we have people who are actually trying to put this thing together. We had a marvelous time. Uh, I saw a lot of people that I, I hadn't seen for a while from seminary, which was really great. And I have to admit, it was a lot of fun to watch Pastor James be among Methodists, because he comes out of a different tradition. And uh, at one point, right at the end, um, there's a, a famous Methodist hymn called And Can It Be. How many of you heard this hymn? And Can It Be? Yep, okay. So, And Can It Be is kind of the anthem. No, no, it's the fight song of the... I kid you not, there was a couple of Methodist ministers in front of us actually fist-pumping to And Can It Be. I've never seen anything like it. It was amazing. And James is looking around going, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> it was amazing. But their sole purpose is to sow the seeds of a great awakening, to see this happen again where there's spiritual renewal. And, and if you think about it, we are in a period of upheaval. We really are. There are smaller revivals that have happened and and we hope for something bigger and broader. And I don't know about you, but I sense that there is a hunger for a real type of spirituality. And I see it in different places, although we might not call it that, but I see it in different areas in our culture and our society. And so I wonder very much, like the poet says in Psalm 85, God, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? I wonder that question. I have that same thought in my own mind. God, would you, would you come and do the thing that only you can do so that we can rejoice in that? And so we've been asking this question uh, for quite some time, even from the very beginning of Thrive Church, but we're kind of joining with Seedbed in this and just kind of asking the question, God, what might we do to see you move? What might we do to see an awakening? Because remember, it's on God's timing. God's going to do this kind of thing, but I want to create an environment for him to do the work that only he can do. Now, awakenings are characterized by two very powerful things. The first thing is preaching, powerful preaching, which may have some implications for the preaching team here at Thrive Church. But the other piece of this, and the one that we need to pay attention to a little bit, is prayer. And um, the New Room uh, Conference made a big deal about this. We spent actually time together, I don't know, three, four hundred people praying together. That was kind of unique. And ironically, my wife and I were having a conversation about prayer the night before. Did you ever have one of those times in your life when a certain idea or a theme keeps coming up like a bad penny over and over again, and you, you finally realize, God, are, are you trying to say something to me? <laughs> you know, it's two by four, boom. <laughs> yeah, okay, now I get it, kind of a thing. And so I'd like to, to spend a little bit of time uh, talking today about, well, prayer. The great missionary Paul planted a church in a city called Thessalonica. 
a great name, Thessalonica. By the way, if you go to Macedonia today, it's in the northern part of Greece, it's called Thessaloniki. I'm not sure why, why they dropped the A and added an I. I don't know why, but apparently the language has changed, but it's just fun to say, Thessalonica. It's in that northern part of Greece, but, but um, Paul actually planted a church there. It was a major Roman port city. It sat on the crossroads of a major northwest road and an east-west road. So you can imagine the strategic significance of this city. And frankly, it had a rocky start. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17, but it includes things like thugs and ruffians and government officials. And sometimes I'm not too sure there's a difference between those. But that's what, what, what has happened there. And Paul actually had to leave the city quickly because there were some things that were going on in, in Thessalonica, uh, a lot of resistance to it. But it turned out to be a great church. And what's so interesting, there was a large Jewish population in Thessalonica, but that little church was actually mo- made, um, composed mostly of non-Jewish people, of Gentiles. And um, they had a different perspective on, on things, and they became a financial partner to Paul and his missionary work, believe it or not. So he, he has to leave the city quickly because of, of the resistance of local government officials. And so one of the first things he does is he writes a letter. Actually writes two letters. In fact, if you look at all of the letters in, in the Bible that Paul wrote, the first one, it's generally accepted that he wrote, was Galatians. The second and third were first and second Thessalonians. And doesn't it make sense? You just kind of get this church up and running a little bit, and then you got to leave. And the first thing you want to do is you want to send them a letter saying, hey, wait, 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 there's some things I wasn't able to tell you. I got to pass these things along to you. So please understand, when you read First and Second Thessalonians, you are reading a letter to a church plant, kind of like us. Wow, there might be some things we can learn from there. Make sense? So I want to spend a little bit of time in First. 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to be in chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to begin with verse 11. Um, He talks a little bit about the history and the early part of the book and how he got to Thessalonica and some of the things that he encountered there. But as he's closing the book out, he's giving some teaching, some ideas, some advice, some even commands to this group of people because they're a fledgling church and there's some things that that they need to know. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm going to begin with verse 11. It's up here on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This word uh, for build each other up actually is a construction word. It, it, it has with it building a house, carries the connotation to it. Um, oikos is, is the root word to it. Build each other up. Some translations, it says edify one another. So encourage and edify one another. Now, that's a great idea. How are you going to do that, Paul? How do we, how do, we do this? This is very important for a young church because in the very, um, the very beginning of any type of, of an organization, you can, you can have differences of ideas, you can have you know, all sorts of things go wrong with it. And so he's looking at this fledgling church and he's saying, encourage one another, build each other up. That is gonna be foundational to you as a church. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Okay, remember, small fledgling organization that's beginning to start there. Just as in fact you are doing. Something I observed, keep on doing it. It's very, very important. 
And so what he does is he says, start with the leaders. Here it is. Um, Verse 12 and 13. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. That's, that's, you know, just a great word. You get a small organization and there's, there's some people who God has gifted in a particular way to care and to teach and to admonish and all of those things. Make sure that you acknowledge them. And then he gives us a couple of very simple ideas. Verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now, there's a part of me that just says, wow, that's really great. That's hard to do, isn't it? That's a challenge to do, and yet this is exactly what um, you know, Paul is, is advising this church to do, commanding in a certain sense, urging them, and notice these simple words. Next slide. <clears throat> Warn, encourage, help, be patient, and do what is good. I think I'm going to put that on a t-shirt, or at least put it on my bathroom mirror just to remind myself. That's what we're supposed to do. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Now, those are two totally different things, right? Idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone, but do what is good. In verse 16, he continues the same idea. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. To highlight these, Donna, notice it says rejoice, pray, give thanks, and do not quench the spirit. Maybe put that on the back of the t-shirt, right? Two things going on there. You know, I was, I was thinking about these ideas. Um, in, in each one of these, what would it be like if we focused on doing these few things, I don't know, there's what, seven or eight different things here? Even if we just took the last, say, four, rejoice, pray, give thanks, and do not quench the Spirit, even if we just did those last four, what would it be like (laughs) if we did it just, say, once a month? What would it be like if we did it once a week? What would it be like if we did it once a day? I suspect it would look kind of like the kingdom of God. I'm just, I'm just going to put that one out there. But, but there's a, another part of me that says, I think it would look like an awakening. Think about that for a moment. Think about it. If you're talking with someone and you sense that the Spirit is doing it, sometimes you just get a feeling that i got to say this and there's something I need to tell you. And, and usually, usually it's, it's something about, about encouragement. Just, you know, you can tell when somebody's off just a little bit, can't you? You just know it. That's the spirit usually poking you and prodding you, saying, you ought to say something here. What if we gave thanks in all circumstances? Now, come on, be honest. That's a really challenging task. Don't believe me? Think about your job. 
Are there moments in your week, in your day, where you're just like, man, I am ready to be done with this, right? And yet, Paul says, give thanks. What would it be like if you gave thanks? Here's an interesting thing. If you read any of the self-help gurus, one of the things that they'll tell you is that in order to combat depression, negativity is to give thanks. It is hard to be negative when you're thankful for things. Interestingly enough, Paul was teaching that back about 2,000 years ago. Ah, funny how certain things come around over and over again. But what that would be like if we would rejoice in everything, if we, if we gave thanks and we continually pray, what would that look like? How would that change us as human beings? I think it would be spiritual renewal, quite honestly. So, these are great ideas, and I really like them. I love this, this idea of, you know, encouraging and being patient, and I want to be like that, but here's a question, the natural question, because one of the things we do when we come to church is not just to get ideas, but to try to figure out how to live it out. We absorb the text, we live it out, right? So, what's the first step? What's the first step? How do you start moving down this road? Well, it actually goes back to verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Now, this word encourage is fascinating because it has a lot of different textures to it. It can mean comfort. It can mean exhort. But sometimes it's translated as prayer. It is a different word than the encourage that you see in verse 14. It's a different kind of encouragement. It's sometimes translated, pray. I want you to think about that for a minute. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Has somebody ever prayed for you and you just felt encouraged? Have you ever been prayed for where you haven't felt encouraged in some way? Probably not. Encourage, pray fascinating word. We don't just pray continually, but we also pray for people. Because it's really easy to pray for myself, right? Oh God, give me wisdom. Oh God, give me patience. No, don't ever pray for patience. I'm just saying, not a good idea. Oh God, give me wisdom. Oh God, give me discernment. Right? Oh God, give me enough money to pay my rent, right? <laughs> Whatever it happens to be. It's easy to pray for ourselves. And the other thing is, it's really easy to pray for other people when they're doing something you don't like. Oh God, help them see the error of their ways. Oh God, please help them with their tongue. Come on now, you're in church, you know this happens, right? We pray for those kinds of things, but what would it be like if we actually prayed for someone in an encouraging sort of way? If we prayed for for people based on where they were right at that, that moment? What if we prayed for their health? What if we prayed for their safety? What if we ad infinitum? Interestingly enough, uh, I got my start in ministry, uh, running drama ministries at a large church up in Michigan. Next slide. Uh, that's an Easter pageant. This is not the one that I was involved in, but the one that I uh, helped with was uh, about that size. It was enormous. 300 cast and crew was, was great. But one of the things that we tried, and I'll never forget this, is before um, our dress rehearsal, <clears throat> 
we took all of our people, we had a special night set aside. There was no rehearsal that night. It's right before dress, dress rehearsal. And uh, we just decided that we were going to pray for one another. And so what we did is we took the main characters and, and cast that size. There's a lot of main characters, um, but you know, significant characters. And we, we set them in chairs and we, we brought the rest of the cast. Remember, 300 cast and crew. I mean, this was a big deal. It consumed our church for about um, two months. And we just prayed over the, those, those main characters because they were the ones who were going to be talking about certain things, certain elements that we wanted to make sure that people understood about who Jesus was and what he did. And I can't tell you, I can't put into words the emotion that was felt. I watched uh, two of my friends who uh, were in this cast bawling because of what was being prayed over them. They felt encouraged, right? They really felt like, this cast is behind me. I can know, go out now and I can do this thing. And it's so fascinating to me because I've probably done it, I don't know, seven or eight times where I've brought a cast together or brought a group of people together. And, and it's so powerful when you have this group of pe- people praying over someone else. Why? Because we say things in prayer to God over that person that we won't say to their face. Think about that. We will say some words of encouragement to them that are very difficult to actually tell someone, but I can tell my Heavenly Father about it, and there's something very powerful about that happening. And it's encouraging, and we just I'll never, never forget those moments of watching it time after time, people feeling encouraged. Boy, this is a big role and I put my heart and soul into all this and I'm not sure how I'm going to do, but I know these people care and I know now that, that my Heavenly Father cares on top of it. Powerful stuff. When I um, moved to Kentucky, when we moved to Kentucky to go to seminary, I started working, next slide, at uh, this place. It's called the Thoroughbred Center. It's a racehorse training facility. I was a staff accountant. Uh, no, I did not spend time with the horses. <clears throat> but uh, I worked there. It was this big antebellum house, and uh, we worked in a, I think it was a ballroom upstairs, if I remember correctly. And uh, I worked there for probably mm, two, maybe three weeks. And the woman who hired me, I really liked her a lot. Um, she uh, gave her two weeks notice because she was going to go and do something else. Um, my guess is just based on what I remember, there was some office politics going on and she got a better offer. And Anyway, I was sitting in her office and she was telling me that she was leaving and I was feeling kind of bad about that. And, and I could tell there was just something that was going on. Remember, I, I haven't even started seminary classes yet. And I could just tell there was something wrong. And I looked at her and I said, can I pray for you? And yes, it was that awkward. <laughs> Can, can I pray for you? And she goes, well, yeah. And I'm like, can you do it right now? Uh, yeah. So I did. I just prayed for her. It wasn't hard. And she, she, she finished, tears in her eyes, and she goes, thank you. You're, you're very good at that. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not. You don't have to be good at praying for people to feel encouraged from your prayers. That is a moment that is locked in my memory of seeing that person. And I can tell you time after time, when you just ask someone, as awkward as it feels, can I pray for you? 
Most times people don't say no. And if they do say no, they say, okay, I'll do it later. They're not going to stop you, <laughs> right? But I think most people want to know that there are people who are pulling for them. Why? Because it's encouraging. In fact, I look back at my life and I can honestly tell you the most significant moments of my spiritual life have almost always been during, been during some type of prayer or worship, which, by the way, those two things are very connected. Every single time. I remember when Lisa and I were getting ready to move to Kentucky and uh, our last Sunday at our church, and they called us up to the altar, and we kneeled at the altar, and I don't know how many people were around us. And they prayed over us. I mean, they prayed over us. And we had a wonderful seminary experience, I think largely in part because of the prayers of that church. One time. It's beautiful. Never forget that. Never felt more sent in all my life. And I suspect that many of you have had similar experiences. If you look back at your spiritual life, those moments when you really felt God move, it probably had something to do with prayers or the prayers of somebody else. God works through human prayer. I don't understand why. He just does. And we see time and time again. And here's the beautiful thing. Those of us who are are Wesleyan heritage and our theology is Wesleyan, We've always believed this, that prayer is the precursor to the work of God every single time. Why he chooses to use us, again, I don't know, but I'm so glad he does. One of the things I read just recently was that some of the Celtic missionaries measured prayer. They measured prayer. Do you want to know how they measured prayer? Get this. They measured it in tears. That's powerful. When you get to that point in your prayers, when there's no words and it's coming up from your gut and I've got nothing else to say, so the emotions leak. It becomes that powerful, measured in tears. If we want to see an awakening, if we want to see revival, shoot, if we just want to see personal renewal, spiritual renewal, pray and pray hard. So during this entire Lenten season, We've been talking about giving things up, so no, I'm not asking you to give up prayer, (laughs) okay? But we've been talking about this idea of of, if we're giving something up, instead of giving up some food that we like, instead of giving up some type of program that we enjoy, instead of doing that, what would happen if we would give up those things that hold us back, that cause us problems, that aren't good for us, that are unhealthy? What if we gave up those kinds of things? What would that be like? And so, you know, what if we gave up things like busyness and, and, and control and discontentment? And so today, what I'm asking you is maybe you could give up silence. Some of you have not been talking to God and he's missing you. I know he's missing me. Because there have been times where I have been so busy and so tired and so distracted that I've been silent to the point where it gets a little awkward. Have you ever had one of those friends or acquaintances and you haven't talked to them for a while and then when you go and you see them again and it's been a little while, it's a little awkward? Sometimes we treat God that way. Well, hey God, how you doing? Yeah, no, I haven't 
talk to you for a while. Or maybe if you've not called your mother for a while. Same kind of upshot is God doesn't guilt you. <laughs> All right? Just so that you know. He's not going to guilt you into that. So maybe we could give up silence. Talk to God. That's all prayer is. It's just talking to God. And what would happen if we would talk to God about the people around us? We pray for people. What if they were standing right there? And we, we actually imagined that God was standing right there too. And we talked to God about this person while they were standing right there. How encouraging would that be? How would that change the dynamic of the relationship? What would that be like? Now, maybe you're one of these people that you already talk to God quite frequently, and you're, you, know, you enjoy that kind of relationship. Uh, and you even pray for others and with others. Maybe you're one of those kind of people. If you are, God bless you, thank you. Please keep at it and add me to your list. <laughs> I really need it. I'm, I'm so glad for the people who are like that. Uh, Lisa and I have a couple of friends who qualify that way. I'm very grateful. Maybe you're a person who's never really made prayer a priority. And so here, here's what I wonder. I wonder if for the next 14 days, 14 days because that's the time between now and Easter. Easter's coming around the corner, right? 14 days. I wonder if you might make it a priority. Talked with God as if he is really there listening, because he is. But even if you don't feel it, pretend like it. Act like it. Talk like it, like he's really there. You could be driving down the road. Imagine Jesus sitting in the passenger seat. Now look, here's the thing that cracks me up. There's a song on the radio that you like. You're singing out loud. You could care less who sees you. What difference does it make if you're talking to Jesus instead of singing your favorite song? Come on now. Try it. See what happens. And just talk with him. But the people you know who are hurting or wrestling or better, rejoice with them. Now, hey, so-and-so just had a promotion at work. Man, God, I am so happy for them. I hope that you just bless them especially today. Just simple things like that. It doesn't have to be overly complex. Now, so some of you, you already do this. Some of you never made a priority. Some of you have just fallen out of the habit. And it happens. It happens to all of us. Maybe you're relegated to dinner time and moments of panic. <laughs> oh, God! Right? Yes. It happens to all of us. Could, could you commit for 14 days? Just commit for 14 days. Maybe try a, a new habit of praying, keeping it, keeping it simple. So I've got a couple of really easy ideas for the next, next two weeks. And some of you have, have heard, heard these before, but I, I think they're, they bear repeating. Here's the first one. Set an alarm for every 60 minutes. Just set an alarm for every 60 minutes because what happens is we get into a habit of not communicating with God. We have to break that habit. We have to break that distraction. And what's amazing to me is that every time I do this little experiment, every 60 minutes my alarm goes off, it's always at a moment when I need God the most. Almost every single time. And maybe you, if you got an iPhone, I know you can do an iPhone. I presume you can do it on the other phones too. But if you can even put it, the alarm will even give you a message. Maybe it just says, God is here. Or maybe it says, God loves you. Or, what does God want me to do right now? Just try it. I double dog dare you. 
I really want to see us break this habit of not communicating with God. So in the next 14 days, 14 days, I'm not even asking you to do it two months like I normally do. 14 days, two weeks, every 60 minutes, set the alarm. I'm going to start it um, uh, probably this afternoon. And here's the other bold idea. Pray with one person. I didn't say pray for, I said pray with. One person, in two weeks, one person. You're going to be talking to people, and I don't care how awkward it is, just try. Can, can I pray for you? Is, is it okay if I do that? And it doesn't have to be complex. Please do not pray. And we pray thee, O Lord, that verily you will hasten unto, oh my gosh. I think God rolls his eyes at those too. But just pray like God is standing right there, just saying, Lord, you know what's going on in so-and-so's life right now. And I just want to encourage them with this prayer. I don't know what they need, but you do. So just help. In Jesus' name, amen. Try it. See what happens. And remember what that person looked like or felt like, what their countenance was on their face. There's a relief to it. If we want to sow the seeds of a great awakening, it will happen in prayer. And I don't think that it just happens for a country. We know the, the phrase, if, if my people would humble themselves, I will heal their land, right? You know what? <laughs> I got land right here that I'm standing on. Let's start there. And maybe if I'm standing next to Dan and Dan's going to start there. Or maybe if I'm here and I know Mike, Mike and Cindy are there like that. Okay, now, now we got bigger land. Let's keep expanding that land. Does that make sense? Maybe if we just did that, we would actually see God heal the things that we want to because we're sowing the seeds of an awakening, but it needs to start with me.